so I want to talk today to you about whether we should permit voluntary assisted dying. And I want to say from the outset, this is obviously a highly emotive um, topic on which people have legitimately different views. Um, and I want to tread carefully as I talk about it. I have my own personal perspective on it and I have my own views about it. Um, I want to attempt to give you a sense of what the law is and why the law is as it is and to explain some of the arguments on either side. Um, as I was writing this, I said to myself at the beginning, make sure you're completely neutral. Um, and I was talking to my husband, he said, yeah, make sure you're completely neutral. Um, and I have to say, I found that I can't be. Um, and I think that I have to stand by that and say, you will see that I have a position. Um, I will attempt to be as unbiased as I can, though. And what I'm really keen is to hear from all of you about your perspectives, because I know many of us have personal stories of this, and we have strong personal feelings, and we have strong moral feelings, um, and I'm very open to hearing um, everybody's perspective at the end. So I look forward to your questions and your comments. So what I first want to talk to you about is what do I mean when I talk about voluntary assisted dying? Um, it means many things. Um, I'm using a fairly limited definition today, but I will talk to you about some wider ideas about what voluntary assisted dying means. So euthanasia is the act of deliberately ending a person's life to relieve their suffering, and assisted suicide is the act of deliberately assisting another person to kill themselves. And these are the two things that we, we tend to mean when we say voluntary assisted dying. Um, and those in favour of these things um, frame them as acts of compassion. So, for example, Baroness Bakewell expressed in the House of Lords recently, an easeful death is a gift the compassionate should legally bestow on patients in their dying days. So it's demonstrably something that those who are in favour of it consider to be a compassionate act. Um, I want to talk to you about some other things that might fall more broadly into the context of assisted dying in a moment. Um, but I want to start with what the fundamental legal position is. Um, the fundamental legal position is that a doctor who deliberately ends a patient's life is potentially guilty of murder. Um, so Justice Devlin said in Adams, if the acts done are intended to kill and do in fact kill, it does not matter if a life is cut short by weeks or months, it is just as much murder as if it were cut short by years. Um, in R. and Inglis, Lord Judge said the law of murder does not distinguish between murder for malevolent reasons and murder motivated by familial love. So as long as the act and the mental element are present, um, it doesn't matter that the patient is terminally ill, it doesn't matter that they had consented, it doesn't matter if it's a merciful act. So Lord Goff affirmed this in Edel, NHS Trust and Bland, when he said it's not lawful for a doctor to administer a drug to his patient to bring about his death. Even if that course is prompted by the humanitarian desire to end his suffering, however great that suffering may be. So there are many clear judicial statements um, that make it clear that this is not lawful that it is not lawful to actively end a patient's life. At this point, I want to pause and tell you about some things that are lawful, because I think when we think about assisted dying, it's important to understand the wider context in which these decisions are taken and what the law does permit. So one of those is refusal of treatment. So we don't tend to think of this as assisted dying, but in effect, a patient can choose to refuse treatment, and that choice has to be respected. We cannot impose treatment on patients who don't want it. Um, Dame Elizabeth Butler-Sloss affirms this in Re-B when she says, if the patient, having been given the relevant information and offered the available options, chooses to refuse that decision, that has to be respected by the doctors. Considerations of best interest of the patient are irrelevant. So when a person is competent and capacitous and able to make their own informed decisions, it doesn't matter if we think they're making a decision that's bad for them. If they want to refuse treatment, we have to respect it. There are other contexts in which treatment is withdrawn. Um, and I think it's really important to understand this as well, is that there are situations in which the doctor can decide not to treat, despite the patient's wishes. Now, again, we don't think of this as assisted dying, um, but it is the case that doctors can withdraw treatment when they think it is futile. And the way to understand this is that the law doesn't oblige doctors to give treatments that they don't think are in the patient's best interest just because the patient demands it. Um, and this was confirmed in Aaron uh, Burke and the GMC in 2005. It was a case in which Ledley Burke had cerebral ataxia and he would eventually need artificial feeding. And he wanted assurance that he would not have feeding and hydration withdrawn from him when he came incompetent, as he knew he eventually would. And the Court of Appeal decided they couldn't give a prospective judgment on a hypothetical question, but they did confirm that patients cannot demand treatment. It's at the doctor's discretion to offer treatment, and there's no duty to do so. That said, it's also the case that a doctor ha does have a duty to do what is reasonable to keep a patient alive. And this usually includes artificial feeding and hydration. Um, and the only times that can be withdrawn are when the patient is non-competent and, and hasn't been expressing a wish to be kept alive prior to losing competence. 
Um, and so there is a tension there between what we expect of doctors and what doctors must do and what patients can request. But fundamentally, doctors cannot be compelled to do things that they think are wrong. Um, but at the same time, they must do what a, what a competent um, and reasonable doctor would do. Otherwise, they would be negligent in their care. So there are contexts in which care, even feeding and hydration, can be lawfully withdrawn. And the most high profile of those cases recently is, is the Bland case from 1993. Um, this concerned Tony Bland, who had been crushed in the Hillsborough disaster, um, and oxygen had been cut off to his brain for some time. And this led to severe and irreversible damage to the highest center of his, centers of his brain. And the question in that case was whether or not it would be all right to withdraw support from him. Um, and here, withdrawal was framed as an omission. It was a failure to keep him alive. Um, and did it include hydration and nutrition were specific dimensions of this decision. Um, and within that, the court considered whether or not withdrawing treatment could ever be in someone's best interest. Can it be the case that it's good for someone to die? Because it was thought it effectively will say his life has no value. Um, but within that case, the various lords expressed a range of views on this and explained that there may be contexts, and this was one of them, in which actually prolonging his treatment and keeping him alive was subjecting him to indignities and distressing his family. Um, Lord Keith said, to an individual with no cognitive capacity, whatever, and no prospect of ever recovering any such capacity, it must be a matter of complete indifference whether he lives or dies. So he was focusing on the lack of capacity. Um, whereas Lord Keith also went on to say, existence in PBS isn't beneficial to a patient. Whereas Lord Goff thought it was about futility and that that was a justification to withdraw treatment. There were a series of cases after that that sort of refined this and confirmed it in cases of PBS and non-PBS. But fundamentally, the obligation to treat is not absolute, and you do not have to treat as a doctor when it is futile. Now, what I think the reason to talk about these before we talk about euthanasia and assisted suicide is to say that there are demonstrably contexts in which doctors and patients can take decisions that lead to the ending of someone's life. And they illustrate the grey area in which the discussion and debate about euthanasia has to operate. So medicine and the law are always, I think, walking a very complex and nuanced line. Um, and I think also it's worth keeping in mind whether we are being legally and morally um, consistent when we take a position on euthanasia or assisted suicide with the things that we already permit. We also need to ask ourselves questions, and I'll consider these in the course of this lecture, about whether or not it's more harmful to permit someone to die slowly when they refuse treatment than to offer them a faster means to the same end. And does it also matter whether it is a mere omission or an act that brings about their death? So now I want to turn to the focus of my talk, which is euthanasia and assisted suicide. So as I said, euthanasia is the ending of someone's life for their benefit, um, and it is illegal. But there are important decision, distinctions to make when we think about euthanasia. Um, all euthanasia is not the same. Voluntary euthanasia is when a person makes a conscious, competent decision to die, and they ask someone to do this for them. So they do not end their own life. Non-voluntary euthanasia is when a person takes a decision on someone else's behalf to end their life. And even within that, there are distinctions. That might be because the person has previously expressed a wish in the past, and now they are reflecting it. Um, but where it doesn't tally with what the person actually wanted, we would be better off calling it involuntary euthanasia. And that is the case where someone makes a decision despite what the patient wants themselves. Now, the kind of euthanasia I'm focusing on today is voluntary euthanasia. There's no suggestion um, in any of the, the present debates, I think, in the Lords and so on, when bills have been made, um, that we're moving towards involuntary euthanasia, and that would be deeply problematic for many reasons um, that I don't wish to go into today, because I think the real debate at the moment is about assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia. Assisted suicide is where somebody needs the assistance of someone else to kill themselves. So they do the act themselves in some form, but they cannot access the means or the method um, on their own. Now, assisted suicide is illegal as well under the terms of the Suicide Act, and it's punishable up by, by up to 14 years. However, trying to kill yourself without assistance is not itself a crime. So assisted suicide in the law, and it's unusual in the sense that it is a criminal offence to help someone do something which is not itself criminal. So the key distinction here is whether or not it's a doctor or another person causing the death or the person who does it for themselves but with assistance. Now, why would anybody seek either of these? I think most of us are probably familiar with that, but I think it's important um, to hear some examples uh, from people who want change or have pressed for change in the law. 
One of the most famous of these, I'm sure everybody has heard of him, is Tony Nicklinson. Um, Tony Nicklinson, if you don't know, had locked-in syndrome. He couldn't talk, he couldn't feed himself. He was unable to move except for his eyes, and he was entirely dependent on others for his care. But he wasn't terminally ill. So he was likely to live for some years, in fact, potentially decades. But he was unable to take his own life. Now, he wanted to end his life, um, but he wasn't able to, and he brought um, a challenge to the law. He described his life at the time as dull, miserable, demeaning, undignified, and intolerable. Um, in another statement, he put a slightly more sharp edge to his comments and said, you try defecating to order while suspended in a sling over a commode and see how you get on. So he did really try to express um, the way his life was and why he wanted to end it. We also have Lord Brown Wilkinson speaking in the Bland case, um, talking about how it might actually seem irrational to keep the law as it currently stands, where he says, how can it be lawful to allow a patient to die slowly, though painlessly, over a period of weeks from a lack of food, but unlawful to produce his immediate death by a lethal injection, thereby saving his family from yet another ordeal to add to the tragedy that has already struck them? I find it difficult to find a moral answer to that question, but it is undoubtedly the law. So people in Tony Nicholson and similar cases, the reason they want euthanasia is because they cannot commit suicide themselves. They are incapacitated and they cannot end their life on their own. Um, those who seek assisted suicide um, do so because, of course, voluntary euthanasia in this country isn't lawful, um, but they cannot access the means to commit suicide themselves, or they can't bring themselves to do it and, and do what it might take to do it in the way that they would have to do it on their own. Now, people can be helped to commit suicide in a range of ways. One would be affording them access to drugs that might end their life. Um, another way to assist suicide is to help them to travel to somewhere um, to where they can commit suicide. And an example of that that you'll be familiar with, of course, is travel to Switzerland to the Dignitas Clinic. And there they may be assisted um, by anyone who helps them to get to the clinic. And that um, was the subject of some of the high-profile cases um, that you might have heard of. So when people go to Dignitas, um, it is a clinic where they'll have a number of meetings with the staff, and then they will be provided with the means to commit suicide, um, which they do so by taking medication orally. Um, it costs thousands of pounds, and it requires travel. So for some people, that isn't actually an option, either because they don't have the means or they aren't actually able to travel. So what is the current law um, in a bit more detail? Well, with assisted suicide, um, suicide ceased to be a crime, under the 1961 Suicide Act, um, but it is clear that helping someone to commit suicide is a crime. Um, the Act goes through in some detail what it means or what complicity in someone else's suicide um, entails. It means encouraging them or assisting them, aiding them, abetting them, counselling them or procuring the means. So it goes into quite a lot of detail, say all of these things um, where you are in some way involved in somebody else's um, suicide will be captured. Um, even arranging for one person to do an act um, might be treated as meaning you are involved. Um, it also includes putting pressure on someone and threatening them. So anything that might lead to somebody else's suicide is captured by the act. Now, this law has come under a series of challenges, and I want to take you through the history of the challenges of the, um, to the act um, so that you understand why we are where we are. The first of these is Pretty, the case of Pretty in the UK from 2002. So Mrs. Pretty suffered from motor neuron disease, which is a progressive degenerative disorder that leads to death. And she sought an undertaking from the DPP that her husband would not be prosecuted if he helped her to commit suicide. But the DPP refused. He would only determine how to act once he had the facts before him. So of course this caused her great anxiety because she worried that if her husband did help her, that after she died he would be subject to prosecution, which he didn't want. Um, so she sought judicial review of his decision. Now, in the case, she raised a range of arguments relating to her human rights. And one was she said that her Article 2, right to life, um, included a right to determine the manner of her own death, and that this included a right to commit suicide. So that it was a right that encompassed all of your decisions about how your life runs in that sense. She also argued that Article 3, the prohibition on torture, um, meant that actually this prohibition on assisting her to commit suicide left her in an inhumane and degraded state, that essentially forcing her to be in a position where she couldn't end her own life or be assisted to do so was a form of inhumane and torturous behaviour towards her, and that therefore this happened due to the actions of the state, that they were the ones putting her in this position, and therefore it was a breach of her Article 3 right. She further argued that this was a breach of her right to privacy under Article 8, 
So she said that decisions about how to die were a matter of privacy, they're a matter of individual conscience, um, and that in denying her the ability to die in a manner of her choosing, her privacy was violated. And this is akin to the sort of arguments you see made about abortion in Article 8. Um, and also, she raised Article 9, freedom of religion and belief. The House of Lords found that there was no prima facie violation of her rights. And they said that actually assisting and abetting suicide doesn't undermine her rights under Article 2, 3, 8, 9, or Article 14, freedom from discrimination. And that the Convention of Human Rights didn't require states to permit assisting in suicide, that any effect on her rights was reasonable and proportionate, and so the DPP could exercise its discretion as he chose. She took her claim to the European Court of Human Rights. They also rejected her claim, and they said that Article 2, the right to life, doesn't have a negative aspect. It doesn't include a right to die. And they said that Article 3, death from natural illness while still provided treatment, doesn't equate to torture either. So it wasn't a breach of Article 3. Um, and they didn't consider that a belief in euthanasia was the kind of right protected by Article 9, the right to freedom of religion and belief. They didn't, however, reject the possibility that Article 8 rights might be invoked. So they did see that this might be a matter of private decision-making. But they also felt that there were strong reasons in favour of the UK Suicide Act provisions. And so, in effect, her convention rights weren't impinged upon because it was a proportionate um, step by the UK government. Some years later, that having failed, a new challenge was brought, um, and this time by Debbie Purdy in 2009. So Debbie Purdy suffered from multiple sclerosis, which is also a progressive degenerative disease. And she also was concerned about what would happen um, to her husband if he helped her to commit suicide. In her case, she wanted to travel to Switzerland to commit suicide. Um, and she would need her husband's help if she left it until the later stages of, of the disease. And she, needed, she was considering having to go earlier if he couldn't help her, which is, I think, an important thing to keep in mind, is that people may choose to go sooner if they worry that they put their loved ones at risk. And that was certainly her concern. So what she sought was not to reopen the pretty challenge, which had obviously failed, but instead to take a different tack and say, well, what they really needed was clarification from the DPP on the application of the Suicide Act provisions to those who assist in suicide. So she accepted that the DPP might prosecute, but what she was asking for was the DPP to give clarity about when he or she, in this case he, um, would do so. So she argued that the DPP was clearly exercising his discretion in not prosecuting people who helped others to go to Switzerland to commit suicide, because about 100 people had already done so. So demonstrably, he wasn't prosecuting. And therefore, he must, she, she argued, have some criteria to determine when he chose not to prosecute, and that these should be made public, and that the failure to do so was an infringement of her convention rights. The divisional court applied pretty and said, no, her rights were not infringed and it wasn't disproportionate. But she was given leave to appeal. Now, before the case went to appeal, the DPP actually released detailed guidance on his reasoning in another case. Uh, and this was a case where the family members had helped a young man um, called Daniel James to travel to Dignitas. Now, Daniel James had been a rugby player and he had been paralysed in an accident and he wanted to die. And what the DPP explained in his guidance on his reasoning in that case, where he didn't prosecute, um, was he'd said, well, things that had suggested that prosecution was appropriate were that suicide, assisting suicide, was a serious offence. So he affirmed the law. But he also said that there were factors suggesting that prosecution was inappropriate. And one of those was that James had attempted to commit suicide and seemed likely to continue trying. Another was that the assistance given was minor um, and that none of those assisting stood to gain from his death and that they had tried to talk him out of it. In fact, they had booked him a return ticket to Switzerland in the hope that he would actually change his mind. So they demonstrably um, were hoping that he wouldn't, but he had a settled desire to end his life, and they supported him in pursuing that. The Court of Appeal dismissed Purdy's claim. The DPP could not and should not guarantee that he wouldn't prosecute. So you couldn't bind the DPP to say when he wouldn't, wouldn't prosecute. Um, and they also said there was enough guidance now to be available to make a guess, an educated guess, about when prosecution might be pursued. But she took it to the House of Lords, um, and her claim succeeded. They accepted that her right to life had been engaged, and her decision to commit suicide fell under Article 8, her right to privacy. They still considered that interference with her right to privacy could be justified, but it required legal justification. Um, and so Lord Brown said, there will be on occasion situations where it would be possible to regard the conduct of the aider and abetter as altruistic rather than criminal, conduct rather to be understood out of respect for an intending suicide's right under Article 8 than discouraged so as to safeguard the right of life to others under Article 2. 
So he's saying that there would be multiple sides to these situations. And as a consequence, they said the current guidance on when such an interference with her Article 8 right might be made was insufficient, and the DPP was required to provide a FIN-specific policy identifying the facts and circumstances when he would take into account in deciding whether to prosecute under Section 2.1. It's important to understand that Purdy didn't change the law. Assisted suicide remained legal. And for some, such as Lord Hofe, this didn't seem to be enough. He said, people shouldn't be forced to linger in old age or in states of advanced physical and mental decrepitude, which conflict with strongly held ideas of self and personal identity. So he was invoking the privacy dimension under Article 8. But regardless, what it did do was require the DPP to give clear guidance on when a prosecution would be made. And this guidance was released in 2010. So there are a lot of factors. I'll touch on some of them, but they give you a sense of what the DPP's perspective was. Um, he listed a range of factors related to both victims and suspects um, about, that would give some direction about when prosecution was more likely. So things related to the victim that increased the likelihood of prosecution would be if the victim was under 18, they lacked legal capacity, they hadn't reached a voluntary, clear, settled and informed decision, they hadn't clearly communicated it, um, they hadn't sought the encouragement of the person who came to, their, to um, assist them. Um, and they were able to do the act themselves. I think more importantly are the suspect-related factors. You can see the kind of quality of act that the DPP is suggesting is the sort that demanded prosecution. And these were if the suspect wasn't known to the victim, um, if they had encouraged more than one victim, um, that they were paid by the victim for their encouragement, they were acting uh, in able to provide a physical environment, or they knew the victim intended to commit suicide in a public place, or they weren't wholly motivated by compassion, or they had pressured them. All of those factors are clearly factors where they are about the suspect's motivations and not about compassion or care for the victim. Um, and so it's saying that the suspect had their own reasons and that actually it's only in cases where the victim's reasons were the dominant reasons that this happened um, that you'll be less likely to prosecute. But a key one to mention, the one that we'll come back to later, um, is that it would be a suspect-related factor likely to increase um, chances of prosecution if the suspect was acting in his capacity or her capacity as a medical professional or a professional carer or a person in authority. So the DPP was making clear that doctors would not um, be immune from prosecution. So a family member might be, but someone in a position of care or responsibility or power, essentially, or authority in relation to a patient would be open to prosecution, more likely so. Was this a sufficient step and was it the right step? Well, in one sense, I think clarity was a good thing. Um, demonstrably, there were people, um, and Purdy was one of them, who found it very stressful and difficult that they couldn't know and they couldn't plan their decisions because they couldn't know what would happen to their loved ones. And in terms of um, what position Purdy was in, it seems to me particularly problematic to put people who are coming towards the end of their life or are deeply vulnerable or in pain or in distress to add this additional burden on them. And so I think it was a good decision in that sense. Some, however, such as Kate Greasley, have argued that actually it was a problematic step. Um, in her article, which she, which she refers to as the case for willful blindness, she says, actually, clarity and guidance made the situation worse because what it did was it undermined discretion to outline factors that would determine when it would be exercised. So in having to lay everything out clearly, the DPP then lost the capacity for further discretion. It also, she says, meant that we have now got a particular way that is mandated of assisting. So doctors are excluded, but family members are not. Um, and that also such clarification effectively leads to determinations on the value of some lives, those that may be assisted to end and those that may not. Now, um, Keir Starmer, who was the DPP at this point um, and who drafted the guidance, when he later became an MP, actually raised his own concerns about the guidance, which I think is very interesting. And he said, actually, one of the things that was a concern about his guidance was that it wasn't supportive of medics assisting. And that this did, he recognised, create a problem for people who were without help. So, in fact, people who didn't have family members to assist them, who were arguably more vulnerable, were put in a worse position, and that they couldn't call on the people who were caring for them to help them at all, and so they, they were left with fewer options than they might otherwise have been. Um, and he also said it was problematic to approach the situation the way um, Purdy had demanded that he do, because it meant that um, it didn't enable a pre-decision 
exploration of the situation. It didn't enable um, people involved to look for consent or whether the decision was voluntary and so on, but rather just placed the emphasis on a post-facto exploration of, of what the person who had assisted them had done and that this wasn't a good solution to the problem of people who wanted um, to be helped to die. Now, when we come to voluntary, so we'll move on to voluntary euthanasia. Um, voluntary euthanasia, I think the thing to say about this, so I've told you the, the, the general legal position. What's also important to know, however, is that doctors are very, very, if ever, convicted of murder for voluntary euthanasia. And it's clear that the judges and the uh, juries and the judiciary are often sympathetic to doctors that they think have acted compassionately. Um, so in R and Arthur, um, it said, Think long and hard, he says to the jury, before deciding that doctors of the eminence we have heard have evolved standards which amount to committing a crime. Or Justice Hooper in R and Moore, you may consider it a great irony that a doctor who goes out of his way to care for a patient ends up facing the charge that he does. So in those situations, the judge had to apply the law as it stood, as did the juries. But you can see that there's a clear direction um, to appreciate the reasons um, as to why a doctor might do this. Now, the law does, it's true, offer a range of um, possible defences, diminished responsibility. It may be the case that someone can say, well, actually, um, the person who helps someone to die um, is, in a sense, themselves not responsible because they're not entirely thinking clearly, and this might affect sentencing. But it's unlikely to be available to doctors, we know, um, because actually they can't show the requisite abnormality of mind in these situations to meet the threshold. We might argue provocation, um, a suicide pact might reduce it to manslaughter, um, but these again uh, tend not to be particularly uh, um, good defences to try to use, they're, they're complex and so on. Um, one is the doctrine of double effect, which is arguably um, a problematic way to think about these things, and I don't intend to go into it in great detail today. But what that means is that you may have two goals, in a sense. You have a dominant goal, which is to relieve pain, and you have a but you're aware that it will lead um, to death. And whether that um, will be a defence, we know from Oren Cheshire that an act leading to death has to be the substantial and operating cause of that death. But of course, it's very difficult for a doctor to tell themselves what one uh, is their goal and the other is just a known side effect. So it is complex and problematic. We also have the case of Jodie and Mary, the separation of conjoined twins. Um, and there, that was framed as self-defense um, and supporting that. But essentially, we know that almost invariably, doctors will not be prosecuted. So we have the situation in which the law says one thing, but it is applied in a different way. So, this was directly challenged in 2014 by Tony Nicholson, who sought voluntary euthanasia. So coming after Pretty and Purdy, um, his was for euthanasia, and that was because he couldn't commit suicide himself. He didn't have the capacity. Now, what he wanted was an exploration of whether or not euthanasia itself, voluntary euthanasia, could effectively be a defence to the charge of murder. So making it explicit to say the defence here is actually that this was euthanasia. Um, and so he sent, sought declarations on two arguments that might, depending on the answer, have enabled him to pursue euthanasia. And one was that the common law defence of necessity would be available to a charge of murder in a case of voluntary active euthanasia, or a charge under the case, uh, under, of a case of assisted suicide. And the other um, alternative was that the current law of murder or of assisted suicide was incompatible with his right to respect for private life under Article 8. So he was reviewing the Article 8 dimension um, on assisted suicide. Now, when he made these, uh, when he saw these declarations, he made a range of caveats that he said would be, um, need to be in place for when necessity could arise. These would be the patient's life was one of unbearable suffering. There was no alternative means to relieve suffering. The decision was clearly voluntary and informed and settled, and the doctor was satisfied um, that the duty to ease suffering outweighed the duty to preserve life. So he was framing a way that the law could accept euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia, as a response to a situation like his. Um, his application for judicial review was rejected by the Divisional Court, um, and after that happened, he refused food and water and he died some days later. But his widow was given permission to carry on, um, and it went to the Court of Appeal, um, and at the Court of Appeal, it was found that euthanasia would not be a defence to murder, and that the restrictions on euthanasia didn't breach his Article 8 rights, that they fell within the margin of appreciation, and it was for Parliament to enact laws. It then went on, joined with another case from a man called Martin, um, to the Supreme Court. And at that point, given the failure on euthanasia, they had pivoted to, to focusing on assisted suicide. 
And what we got from this is essentially the final word, because subsequent decisions that have come to the courts have said Nicholson is our final position of the House of, of the Supreme Court. And in that, someone unusually, all nine justices of the Supreme Court gave their views, so it's complicated to pick out um, the, what the decision means. But fundamentally, five of the judges felt that they could decide, that it did fall within their constitutional powers to decide this, uh, but they differed on whether or not Article 8 um, was incompatible with assisted suicide. So they all thought they could make the decision, but they had different views on what the decision should be. And four felt that it was a matter for Parliament. Um, and as some, like Lord Sumption, pointed out, this was because it was a case of vexed moral issues and it was, there was a need for non-individualised, non-personally related decision-making, that it needed to take account of community perspectives and be a generally asserted decision. And only Parliament could do that. It wasn't right for judges to do so. So that is the state of the law, and it remains the state of the law despite recent changes. Now, what I want to do at this point is to give you some sense of what the community thinks about the law, and then I will talk to you about some of the recent attempts to change the law um, through Parliament. It's quite difficult, I think, um, and I found it quite difficult to find out what people in the community thought about it. Um, and so if you go to look at some of the information that is out there, you will see that even the surveys, even the data that we, we have about people's views is, is contested. Um, so I will give you some data, but I, I give it to you with the caveat that I'm aware that there is debate about whether or not this data is indicative of what people feel. But the general view that people express is that the population is generally, although not exceedingly in the majority, in favour of allowing some liberalisation about assisted dying but it depends on the source and the survey. So according to the Campaign for Dignity and Dying, which is a lobby group pressing for change in the law, um, in their view, 84% of the public support the choice of assisted dying for terminally ill adults, and 86% of people with a disability support this change to the law. Other groups, however, challenge these results. So an example of that is Right to Life UK, which argues that some of these polls are actually misleading and skewed. And so they point out some criticisms of the robustness of dignity and dying survey data. And they say, well, actually, some of those answers change in surveys um, when you present some counter-arguments and give more detail about what assisted dying would look like when we put it into practice. Um, so, for example, they say that whether respondents to a poll exposed to, were exposed to counter-arguments to the introduction of assisted suicide appeared to have an impact on the percentages of the responses, respondents who said that they supported it. So they say that support for assisted suicide, for example, dropped from 73% in one survey to 43% when respondents were presented with counter-arguments. Um, another survey suggested that 74% of respondents agreed or strongly agreed with the proposal for a bill to enable mentally competent adults in the UK who are terminally ill and have a declared and clear and settled intent to earn their own life to be provided with assistance to commit suicide. But that support dropped only slightly, but it did, drop, it did drop when they were told that various medical groups, such as the BMA and major disability groups, weren't supportive of a change in the law. Similarly, support dropped when the counter-argument was raised that the argument was that there was a risk of people feeling pressured to end their life early to avoid being a burden. <coughs> that said, in all of the surveys that I have looked at, support still remains at slightly above 50%, so 50 to 60%. Um, and so it seems to me that it is not reasonable to say that there is a settled view in the community. There is demonstrably a division of views um, and that the resistance on one side is very strong and the support on the other side is very strong. It's not an issue on which many people feel ambivalent. So what do we do with this sort of data? Does this give us the answer about what we should do? Well, my feeling is we should take it seriously, but what we should take seriously is that there is strongly divided opinion and that whatever solution we develop, it needs to be able to account for the fact that whatever view people have, they feel it very, very strongly and with very good reasons. And so whatever legal solution we produce has to account for the fact um, that there are differences of views. Whether that means a permissive system is another matter, which I'll come to. Another question I asked myself when I was writing this talk was I was thinking, well, what do medical professionals think about this? Um, and actually, we know that because the BMA did a very extensive survey of its members in 2021. Now, the BMA is a policy-making body, it's, it's policy-making body, uh, it's partly that, it's policy-making body um, voted in favour of a motion to change its policy on assisted dying from opposition to one of neutrality. So they don't support it now, but they don't oppose it. 
So their official position is, this means we neither support nor oppose attempts to change the law. We will not be silent on the issue, however. We have a responsibility to represent our members' interests and concerns in any future legislative proposals. Um, and we'll continue to engage with our members to determine their views. So this was informed by, but not entirely determined by, their survey of their members. So what did doctors say? Well, they were split quite evenly. So on the question of do you personally support or oppose a change in the law um, on prescribing drugs for eligible patients to self-administer, so assisted suicide, 50% were supportive and 39% opposed. But then when asked, would you be willing to participate in any way in the process if the law changed, that is, would you help provide these drugs, only 36% said yes and 45% said no. So you can see that some doctors are supportive, but they don't themselves personally want to do it. So they can appreciate that other people might be happy to be involved. They can appreciate why somebody would want to do it, but they personally don't want to participate. On the question of whether they personally supported or changed a law so that doctors themselves could administer the drugs, so not providing them, not facilitating assisted suicide, but rather performing the end of life themselves, only 37% were supportive and 46% opposed this. So when it became the doctor's role to end life, um, there was clear opposition to that. Um, so only a third of doctors wanted to participate in euthanasia. Um, when asked, would you be willing to participate in any way in the process, so not just whether it would be permitted, but whether they themselves would be prepared to do it, only a quarter, only 26% said yes, they would. Um, and 54% said no, they would not, that they would not be prepared to participate in euthanasia. Now, it's really interesting to think about what does this mean? And we can drill down into a bit of it, but for reasons of time, I'm not going to drill deeply into it. I think one thing to take from this, and I'm not a doctor, but it suggests to me that even those who watch people die experience death the most of all of us and have the most close in perspective in one sense, and who also will have had their own personal experiences, um, slant away from supporting euthanasia, but less so assisted suicide. That is, that is true. Um, and so I often think, I wonder, do they know more about death as a profession than the rest of us do? I would say they probably do. Um, however, it's also true that many members of the BMA don't work in end-of-life care, and so they may know, you know as much as anybody else. So as a group, we can't make such a claim. Now, the BMA um, quite wisely um, anticipated this, I imagine, and broke down the responses by specialty. Um, and those who were more supportive as, of of euthanasia and assisted suicide were anaesthetics, emergency medicine, intensive care, obstetrics and gynaecology. But really interestingly, I think those who were more opposed were clinical oncology, GPs, geriatric medicine and palliative care. So the people who do actually work with people who are dying or who are terminally ill are the ones who are opposed. So the thesis that um, people who know about death might be supportive of helping to people to end their lives, who watch people um, uh, as they approach the end of their lives, would support ending that isn't true. Um, so actually, they are less supportive. Now, again, you might wonder, are they skewed in a different way? Their vocation is to preserve life. And it will be understandable if, for many of them, the idea of then changing to not preserving, but rather ending, would be very difficult to accept. Um, particularly those in palliation. And I think to be a palliative care specialist, I imagine that you have to be deeply committed to palliation as a response to death. That is essentially your vocation. But I would also imagine that lots of us who aren't involved in this would find it difficult to believe that palliation can be as good as we would hope it would be. And so I think that we should trust those who actually do provide palliative care when they say, actually, it can do an enormous amount of work, probably more than you might appreciate. And I think this is the kind of context in which we need to listen to experts about their experience even though, and I have personal experience of this, find it very difficult to do that. And any of us who've been involved in these things, I think, will find it very difficult. Um, how there's also true what comes out of this is that many medical professionals are resistant to having to participate, so that even those who support it don't want to do it. Now, whatever solution we propose in the end, that means that we must have a range of ways in which they can conscientiously object um, and that we might need to have specialised service providers. We shouldn't impose on doctors who don't want to end people's lives and the responsibility for doing so. So unsurprisingly, there's been considerable pressure for change, um, and it is met with substantial resistance. So there have been high-profile campaigns run on both sides. They're very emotive. In fact, they overtly rely on emotive and personal stories, as they rightly should. 
So dignity in dying and humanist UK are in favour of changes to the law, care not killing, right to life care are opposing change in the law. Now, at this point, I want to give you an overview of all of these changes, because I think it's important to see that this process has been going on for at least 20 years, but, but certainly longer. But the last 20 years, we have seen repeated challenges. So we saw Pretty in 2001. In 2005, we had the Joffe Bill on assisted dying for the terminally ill. Didn't make it past the committee stage of the Lords. Purdy some few years later, um, and we know what happened there. Nicholson, 2014. In 2014, we also had the Falconer Bill, again an assisted dying bill. It made its second reading but didn't progress. We had the Maris Bill in 2015 that was defeated at second reading, another private member's bill that was modelled on Falconer. And we had the Conway case and the Nubian Lamb cases in 2018 2019. But most recently, we have the Meacher Bill, um, a private member's bill um, from May 2021. What that was proposing was that for terminally ill adults of full capacity who made a voluntary request, who'd been resident in England and Wales for 12 months, could apply to the High Court um, and that would authorise um, assisted dying. That also didn't get further than second reading in the Lords. Now, what can we tell from that? Well, it's clear that the courts have resisted change. Parliament, albeit in the Lords largely, has resisted change. So given we end up, I think, with two conflicting pieces of information. We're told that the majority, albeit a small majority, support a change in the law. And yet, every attempt to make that change has failed. So I've thought to myself, well, I wonder, I need to really find out why. What happened in these debates? Um, and why were they resisted? So I read the Hansard last week um, to see what kinds of arguments were made. And I have to say it was a very articulate and thoughtful debate in the Lords, um, particularly on the Meacher Bill. So I'll give you a flavour of both sides, and then I'm going to turn in my last 15 minutes to talk to you about um, arguments on either side myself. So in favour of the bills, many comments were made about, we can see models from overseas on which we could draw. People fear a traumatic dying process, and there were many impassioned statements in the Lords about the pain that people suffered, the anxiety that they and their families suffered, um, Baroness Meacher, Raised the, raised the fact that people are afraid because they think their suffering won't be alleviated by palliation, gave some, um, some quite um, moving examples, and that people were left in a position by the law as it stood that the only way they could avoid their suffering was to starve themselves to death or to find someone to take their life for them and hope that they weren't prosecuted. And it was felt, um, it was said, that now there had been a change in view. So the BMA and the Royal College's physicians having changed to withdrawing their opposition, changing survey data, all seemed to suggest that there had been a change in mood and hence it was time for a change in the law. Others suggested that assisted dying should be regarded not as an alternative to palliation but as an element, a complementary part of it. Some argued that there had been no evidence of slippery slopes, one of the arguments that I'll come to in other countries, and so actually introducing a more permissive law wouldn't be as problematic as we might have assumed. That we could put in place safeguards that would in fact be better than the law as it stands, because at the moment, of course, as we've seen, there are people who do die, but they die via refusal of treatment, suicide or starvation, or they travel. And that actually an open, regulated system with strong safeguards would be more protective than that system. And finally, of course, there were many people who argued, as I'll explore later, that it is about choice and it's about giving people the decision to say what is right for them. So it was summed up well by Lord Shorburn. He said that society has decided that it knows better than you. Even though this is the most important decision that anybody can take about their own life, society has said you are denied that choice and you have to suffer. I cannot accept that it is wrong and cruel. So that was the tenor of the debate um, for the change in the law. There was, of course, significant opposition as well. One of those, one um, element of that opposition was it actually be very difficult to put any law into effect. So often, uh, and in this case, the idea of six months to live was used. Um, that idea of, well, we couldn't actually do that. Doctors can't actually tell you how many months you have to live. So the idea that we could draw bright lines about whether someone is terminally ill and has a certain amount of time until they die isn't actually realistic. It would be difficult to put it into effect because it would not be easy, in fact, it would be very difficult to determine when a decision is competent and free from pressure. People were concerned about the workload for the High Court. Um, people were worried about malicious motives. Lord Adonis said it's not possible to guard adequately against the abuse of the very elderly and the very ill by greedy and manipulative relations and friends. Many people raised slippery soap concerns. 
um, pointing to the expansion of criteria in the Netherlands and Canada, um, and also were deeply concerned about the need to protect the vulnerable. So Maramus, Baroness Masham Vilton said, vulnerable people need protection, not the threat of being killed if life becomes too difficult. How can they trust doctors if this bill is accepted? So that is where we are. So, uh, I'm sorry. Um, so what I want to do at this point now is to tell you the arguments on both sides. Now, normally, the way I structure something is I want to say, well, here's the argument on one side, and I will go through the argument and say, well, that's an argument for that side. Um, and then I would go through an argument on the other. Um, but what is really interesting, in fact, is that in this context, the picture is so complex that it doesn't lend itself to such a breakdown. And that's because many of the factors or principles that are raised in the debate can actually be made as arguments on both sides. Um, it's one of those areas of bioethical debate where both sides have similar goals, respecting autonomy, protecting people from harm, but come to opposite conclusions. Even uh, as the Archbishop of Canterbury said in the House of Lords in the debate on the Meacher Bill, everyone here shares the best of intentions. So to see why and to appreciate the complexity of these issues, um, I'll work through some of the principles and arguments together. And so I will give you an argument and I'll give you some, some responses to it. So one of the dominant and key arguments is respect for autonomy. And autonomy has been a dominant value in medical ethics since the 80s at least, and very much has a very strong um, power in medical ethics, precisely as a response to uh, things that happened in the 20th century where autonomy was not respected, not just in the sense of doctor knows best approaches in medicine, but in numerous um, problematic situations such as Tuskegee and uh, experiments and so on that were problematic that I won't go into. Why do we want to respect people's autonomy and what do we mean by it? Well, we mean the ability to make competent choices about our lives. And we value it because we value being in control, of our, in control of our own lives. We take value simply by making our own decisions. But we also value it because we can bring our own subjective values to bear. We know what is best for us. Um, and if we choose it, we will be more likely than anybody else to know what will make our lives go well. That is the presumption that I know what is good for me, and you know what is good for you. And so I should choose for me. It is more likely that I will make the choice that makes my life go well. However, autonomy isn't really as simple as that. So Sarah Conley points out that often we actually don't know what is best for us, um, and that we make bad decisions because we're afraid, because we don't understand things, because we're influenced by things we shouldn't be influenced by, because we are essentially human. And so much of the debate around autonomy is about whether or not people really are capable of making autonomous choices that do make their lives go well, and whether, in fact, we ought to prevent people from making choices that will harm them. The other dimension to this is whether or not our choices are ever really free. So the idea is meant to be that I make a voluntary informed choice. It is my decision that um, reflects my values. But actually, many of our choices aren't very authentic. We might feel pressure. We might feel guilt. And these are issues, particularly at the end of life, when people do feel pressure and they do feel that they are a burden. And this is particularly true of people who are vulnerable. Um, and people are vulnerable at the end of life. So this is, a, is an issue of serious importance in debates about assisted dying. But when you take away someone's autonomy, it feels like a terrible thing, particularly in the context of death. And that is because death is probably the most personal thing that will ever happen to any of us. So Dworkin says, making someone die in a way that others approve of, but which he believes a horrifying contradiction of his life, is a devastating, odious form of tyranny. When we permit people's choices about death, we do promote their autonomy, we respect their personal views, we allow them to die as they wish. And if we restrict that choice, then they might do it anyway. But what will actually happen is they will have worse deaths, arguably. So Baroness Meacher made this point in the Lords when she said, we will hear much today about vulnerable people, and that is absolutely right. But there are no legal safeguards for dying people who decide to end their lives early, whether by starving or shooting themselves. We propose a rigorously safeguarded system that would end these barbarous deaths and protect vulnerable people. So when we don't give people choices to, to have, well, we don't give them good options, they resort to bad options um, so that they can have what they want. There are many responses to this. One is, and we'll come back to this, is the idea that life is sacred, that actually life is so precious that it should be protected. Another is that our death isn't a self-regarding act. It actually affects other people. 
And this is an argument for restraining that choice, that when I make a decision, I don't just affect myself, I affect many people around me. Um, and that will be doctors, and it will be my family members, and my friends, and those who love me. We would also say that protecting the autonomy of one person might undermine others. So giving one person their choice, because they are competent and capacitors and able to make it, means that we give everybody their choice. And that means those who can't make their own choices or can't make good choices for themselves will be harmed. So there is a cost. Some suggest that actually a choice to die of somebody who is um, in a state like Tony Nicholson or someone who is close to death can't ever actually be fully autonomous. It can't be a full, um, rich decision partly because they might be depressed. And in fact, we know this, that many people suffer depression towards the end of life, quite understandably, um, and that when they are less depressed or when that is treated, many of them change their minds and don't want to opt for assisted dying. Um, John McKeown makes, John makes this point um, when he talks about how actually many autonomous requests for assisted dying actually evaporate um, when the depression is treated. And I think it's really important to be mindful of that. Um, but, of course, the response to that is, well, that isn't an argument against assisted dying. That's an argument for better support and making sure that we treat people who are depressed. Um, but if it's, unless it's the case that everybody changes their mind after treatment, um, which isn't the case, it means that we will still always thwart some people's settled desires if we don't allow them access to assisted dying. Others suggest that a request to die is actually a, a cry for help um, and that what we should do rather than acquiesce or is, in fact, we should help them. So they aren't saying they really want to die. What they're saying is, I'm in pain, I'm in distress, and what I need is better care. We also know that some people change their minds. Um, and this is particularly a problem if we allow euthanasia and assisted dying where people are not close to death. So somebody, um, Dworkin talks about the lovesick teenager problem. The idea, and I work on this with my students, is the idea that you might find a 17-year-old and they, they break up with their first boyfriend or girlfriend and they're so distraught and they say, I want to die. And you would never, I think, agree with them. And the reason is because we know that they will change their mind. Almost invariably, people change their minds. And we need to leave space for that to be true as well, um, rather than enabling them to make um, of such a final decision. The other issue as well is that, of course, in a perfect permissive system, it might be the case um, that we captured everybody's choices. But the reality is that won't be true. There will be people who are pressured. And whatever system we put in place, we won't be able to prevent that. Pressure can be subtle, and it's going to affect the vulnerable most, um, particularly those without support networks. Um, and Katrina George makes the point that women, in particular, feel this pressure the most, not to be a burden to carry on um, their social roles. There will be abuse by family members, by doctors, by hospitals. We cannot believe that we can make a, per a perfect system. But we could say that at least bringing it out into the open prevents abuse that probably happens now. So at least we will be able to openly discuss it and openly look for um, problems. The other issue is that people at the end of life will feel like a burden and that they should feel they ought to end their lives um, and to remove themselves. And I think that would be particularly likely in cases where a loved one is taking on a care burden. Um, as the BMA has pointed out, in the absence of assisted dying laws, um, people can voice these concerns because they feel safe that their lives won't be ended. Um, the BMA is not suggesting this will happen, but it is an argument that was made that they raised. And that actually some patients might believe that a doctor will give up on them if they express their concerns. And therefore, um, it is better to leave it not an option so that they feel safe at least speaking openly about how they feel. Um, there are also those, and Mary Warnock is one of them, who have said, well, actually, perhaps it's right. You should feel like a burden. Um, and she said, John Keown quotes her saying, if you're demented, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, you're wasting the resources of the NHS. And I think that is exactly the kind of view um, that people are very afraid of, is not only that people will feel their own sense of burden, but that others will make them feel like a burden and that that is wrong because they won't then be making a voluntary and settled um, choice for themselves. They'll be making their choice for somebody else, which if your goal is to give people their autonomy and make their lives go better, seems to me completely perverse. The other reason that people might support, or one might support euthanasia and assisted dying, of course, is preventing harm. And that's what we see in discussions like Tony Nicholson. He's explaining that his situation is harming. Um, and it might also be that we want to give people their preferences. Some people gain peace from knowing that they will have control over how and when they'll die. They want to die at a particular time, in a particular place. James Rachels talks about how it is cruel to withhold, someone, uh, withhold from someone a swift death, but permit them a slow death. 
that we aren't giving them a range of good choices to make. So there are clear harm arguments, but of course there is a response to that as well, and that is that actually what that means perhaps is that we need better palliation and better supportive care. Here I think we end up in one of the problems, which is we have a debate in either direction. Can palliation end all pain and suffering at the end of life? No, I don't think that it can, but it can probably do more than many people think. It's not just about pain management, it's about managing distressing symptoms and anxiety and mobility issues and so forth. But we will always have cases of people who fall through the cracks. So Heather McQueen talks about her mother's death on Dignity and Dying website, where she says, we watched everything unfold in its full horror. Um, Sally Bryden talks on Dignity and Dying as well, saying, my thoughts are filled with anxiety and fear that my pain and sickness will not be controllable. Um, and having the option of assisted death would change that. I think about dying constantly. What will happen if the tumours on the left or the right grow fast? Is how am I going to die, whether I will be in pain? So even if it were true that palliation could fix everything, I doubt that everybody would believe that. So there will still be some forms of suffering. And there are certainly forms of disease where palliation can't take away the impact. It can't take away the impact of Parkinson's disease, motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis, Tony Nicholson's situation. It can do a lot, but it can't do everything. So, of course, there are arguments on either side then. Um, and with all of them, of course, there's a risk of error. We might get decisions wrong. We might be wrong about what is good for people. We simply cannot have um, a perfect system. So what should we do? Um, I think the concern here, or the difficulty is, that there are always good arguments on both sides. There are impacts on one another, and there are impacts on ourselves. There is the possibility of slippery slope. It may well be true that we will slip down that slope, and we will become hardened to the harms, and we will accept things that we wouldn't otherwise have accepted. Or it may be that we put in strong stops, and that isn't true. It is true that there will be an impact on doctors and medical professionals. Doctors will be exposed to requests openly from people who wish to die that they don't want to support. Um, there will be an impact on the doctor-patient relationship, and that is true. But also, there will be benefits to people. Their choices at the end of life will be respected. What I think we need to do then is think there are two ways to get through this, I think. And one is to accept that it is partly a balance of harms argument and to think, what happens if we do nothing? I think the matter is too vexed for the law to manage in some ways. Um, if we leave it as it is, um, there, won't, there will be few prosecutions, but not many more. But I think if we leave it as it is, demonstrably there are people who will fall through the cracks and continue to suffer. The problem is once we open up choice, as Simon Rippon argues, we create an option, and that places a pressure on someone. It stops being the case that you aren't accessing something that doesn't exist, and instead you are resisting a choice that you've got, but you don't want to take it. And that's quite a different situation. It isn't a neutral option just to be permissive and say, well, let's let everybody have their own choice. It isn't as simple as that, because once the choice is on the table, when someone doesn't take it, they are actively not taking it, as opposed to it just not being an option at all. So I think there's only two things we can think about as our way to get through this, and I'm, I'm quite mindful of the time, and I need to wind up. And one of those is that we have to accept that there is a balance of harms here, that there will be harms whichever system we have. I've talked to you a lot about some of the harms that we have on either side. People will be left to die in ways that they don't want at the moment. But on the other side, if we have a permissive system, we have to accept that there will be people who die sooner than they would other have died. Otherwise have died, and there will be people who die when they didn't really want to, because our system will be imperfect. On that, I feel um, that is a matter for personal debate in one sense. But my view is that, um, and this is the part where um, I think it is slightly controversial to say, but I think that the harms of leaving people to live in a way that they find deeply problematic are probably worse than the harms of the shortening of some lives. But even that, I find a difficult thing. When I hear myself say it, I think, even I find it hard to completely commit to that position. And that's certainly one of the positions on which I would like to hear what you think. Um, I certainly feel conflicted on it. Um, and I say that as someone who has watched someone die um, and suffer greatly. And so I do feel quite strongly about it. But I'm also very mindful that it's easy to think that a little bit of lost life isn't so bad as that suffering. Um, so I think the only way you can resolve it is to look at what are our key values. And one of our values is to be beneficent and do good to pe for people. But I think fundamentally we are committed as a society to being pluralistic and respecting people and respecting them as moral agents. And so fundamentally the only way through this as far as I can see is respect for autonomy. That is our fundamental principle that guides our law. Um, and we should 
at some sense, in some sense, give people back the choice to make um, their own decisions about how they die. Um, it will be the case that there will be some failures. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't at least try to make a system that does its best to do this and to respect people's choices in that way. So I think that only through liberalisation can we allow people to live a life according to their values, by choosing to die or not to die. A prohibition enables only one group to live by their values. The others can't. And in a secular society where we allow for differences in values and differences in viewpoints, the only way we can achieve respect for all these differences is to be permissive. We have to allow people their freedoms, even though it comes at a cost. And we need to avoid that cost as far as we can. But I think the alternative of telling people that they can't make their own choice about the most serious event in their lives has to be considered far worse. Thank you. <laughs>